Thanks for listening to Connection Church's podcast. Today's message is a part of our series, Am I Saved? Whether we grew up in church our entire life or were a brand new believer, chances are we've asked ourselves this question before. Our prayer is that you gain a better understanding of the authenticity of your salvation by listening to today's message. Morning. Everybody good? Man, there's a lot of y'all out there. I'm going to take my Bible and go home. It's kind of freaky. But, uh, man, glad, glad you guys are here. If you're a visitor here at Connection, man, again, glad you're here. Um, and uh, as always, praying that God does some incredible stuff here today um, in our hearts. We're going to jump in quickly. Got a lot of ground to cover this morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Um, one thing I do want to mention to you is coming up on April the 28th. It's going to be an awesome day. We're going to do baptisms um, here at the church. Uh, if you are a believer in Jesus and you have not been baptized as a believer in Jesus, we believe that your next step, according to Scripture, is to be baptized. And so here's the cool thing about it. You don't really have to pray about it. You, you just say, I am a believer in Jesus. My next step is to be baptized. Um, and because Jesus said so, right? We don't really need any better reason than that. And so... Um, if you want to be baptized, you know it's time for you to be baptized. God has done a work in your heart, brought you to faith in Him, and, uh, and, and, and you're ready to take that next step. Then we'd love for you to sign up at our next steps table. We'll get you more information about um, how that's going to take place, when it's going to take place. We'll actually be doing them here at the school, uh, so you won't even have to go anywhere on that particular day. It'd be awesome. So um, please, if, if you're a believer in Jesus, take your next step and be baptized. Um, Continuing today this series on uh, Am I Saved? I'm looking at what does it mean to be saved? What does it truly mean? Like, how do I know I'm saved? The Bible says in 1 John 5, 13 that John re- wrote these things so that we can know that we have eternal life. So God doesn't desire for us to wonder. Um, he doesn't desire that we would go through the, our entire life guessing. Um, who wants to put their eternity um, on, on, the po- on a possibility, right? Um, he wants us to know that we're saved or know that we're not saved. I see so many people who worry about their salvation and, and who have faith in Christ. And then so many people who feel like they're saved, but they don't have faith in Christ. And so it's one of those things where I want us to be clear on this. And so that's why we're doing this series. Um, we're going to continue today, as I said, in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. And uh, I want to read verses 9 through 20. We're going to pray. We're going to jump in here um, and and just believe that God's going to speak to our hearts through his word. It says in in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. In encouraging scripture, right? Um, There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Listen to this. Now we know that whatever the law says, God commands his word. It says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Let's pray. God, thank you. For this opportunity to open your word, God, um, we need you. We need you in this place right now. We need you in our lives. We need the life that you offer. We need 
your sacrifice on the cross for us. God, help us to understand that more clearly, to value it more deeply, that our affections, God, would be stirred for you and that we would walk out of here more like you, more in love with you, and going out to serve you, God, out of joyous and gracious hearts. We love you, God, and thank you for Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, One thing that I have observed about life, and and I've been living long enough now to realize, is that there are a lot of important questions we ask in life, isn't there? Like Every day we ask questions, and and, uh, in fact, I think that's one way we learn the most is when we ask questions. If that's the case, then my children should be geniuses because they can ask more questions than anybody. From, from my house, which is about 10 miles out to Statesboro, I swear they can ask 100 questions. And so they should be very, very intelligent. But we ask a lot of important questions. For instance, um, when we were about to have our children, one of the questions we asked consistently and constantly was, is it a boy or a girl? Um, we came, uh, we had two boys. Everybody was buying us girl stuff because everybody wanted Susan to have a little girl. And I was like, it's a boy. And they're like, how do you know it's a boy? And I was like, because... Williams don't have girls. And it's so much so that my granddaddy told me before we had our first child, he said, son, if it's a girl, you need to start asking questions. <laughs> and I was like, pops, I really don't want to have that conversation with you. And uh, so it just is a fact, like, like we don't have girls. And so, um, but we do ask the question, um, is it a boy? Is it a girl? We ask the question, have you ever asked this question? Does he bite? Right? You ask that about dogs or my children, and, and, and especially Reed right now. You stick your hand out there, he's going to bite it. He, lo- he just has a, a taste for human flesh. I don't know what it is, but he bites everybody. And so you, we ask important questions. Is it poisonous? Saw a snake yesterday. First question I asked, is it poisonous? You know, we ask important questions all the time. Um, where are my car keys? Important question. Especially when you're already running like five, ten minutes late. Who will I marry? Important question. Where will I live? Um, where will I work? Um, what, you know, what, what did the test show? Did I pass my test, right? Finals coming up. You're probably wondering, like, will I pass? You know, a lot of important questions that we ask. Um, and, and, and the thing, though, that I would tell you is there's no more important question that we'll ever ask than the question that we're answering in these messages today of am I saved? Am I saved? Am I really saved? Do, do I have faith? Do, do I have what it takes? Some of us ask, have I done enough? To be saved. Have I pleased God enough with my life to be saved? And these are the things we're looking at. Like, am I saved? There's no more important question than where I will spend eternity. Will I spend it separated from God or will I spend it with God in relationship with him? No more important question. When Paul begins into these, the, this scripture in uh, verse 9, he starts it out with a question. He says, what will we conclude then? And Paul's referencing what he's written in the first two and a half chapters. Or chapters 1, 2, and then part of 3. He's saying, what should we conclude from the things that I've written? But he's trying to bring people to a bigger conclusion. What do we do with Jesus? How do we know that we are saved? How do we attain righteousness? That's the thing that he's really trying to bring them to, is to this point where they answer this question. Have I been made right with God? Am I okay? If my life were to end today, where would I be? Am I saved? There is no more important question than this. And Paul says, what can we conclude from all that I've written? And then he kind of gives us this cleft note version of the first two and a half chapters. So here's the cool thing. You need to read chapters one, two, and part of three. But if you just want a glimpse of it, you can go read verses nine through 18 and nine through 20 and begin to see what Paul's been telling them. 
Basically, it wasn't good, was it? I mean, we looked at this and, and he basically tells them, no one's righteous, not even one. Nobody seeks God. He even tells them like, we're all worthless. We're all worthless. And he begins to lay this out there, but he's trying to build to this point that he shows them their hopelessness. See, here's the reality of the gospel. Until we hear the bad news, we, don't, we can't really appreciate the good news. It's the problem with not talking about the bad news in church. It's the problem with not talking about um, chapter 3, verse 23, where it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we avoid the bad news that sin has separated us from God, that that separation should be eternal, that we do deserve to spend eternity in hell, then we can't appreciate the good news that Jesus gave his life for us, that he came and lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, that he did die on a cross, that he did get put in a, in a cave, in a tomb, but then he did on the third day step out defeating death and bring bringing life to us. If we don't see the bad news, we really can't appreciate the good news. And I just want you to come to this place today and I want you to feel the weight of Paul's words as he's writing them to Jewish believers who thought that they are Jewish people who thought that they had it all together, that thought that their works and the fact that they were simply Jewish was going to bring them into this relationship with God. And basically what Paul is telling us is, listen, it doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter about your ethnicity. It doesn't matter about what you've done. It don't matter who your mom and daddy are. It doesn't matter anything because here's the fact. Apart from Jesus, we are all bound to spend eternity separated from God. That's the bad news. There's no getting around that. And Paul in this is telling us like the situation's bleak and it's not good. And we're hopeless and helpless in our sin. Most of you, I don't have to convince that there's sin in your life. You know it. What most of us need a revelation of, to be convinced of, is that there's a Savior who's overcome it. That's the difference that we need to see in these scriptures. But Paul goes on and he says, listen, the evidence is so overwhelming. The evidence is so stacked against you that one day we'll all be silent before God. That we will be held accountable to God, but we'll all be silent before God. Like, in other words, our sin, according to God's holiness, is so evident and so obvious that we can't even utter a plea. Like, we have no response other than, you're right. It's basically it. We have no other response. When I was 16 years old, um, I got my first car, and I thought I was going to get um, a truck for my birthday, um, my 16th birthday, and I did, but it was a matchbox truck. And I thought for sure there was a key underneath it. There wasn't. Um, and so I didn't get a car right off. And then finally, about six months later, I got a 1983 Honda Accord. And so don't judge my car. That was an awesome car. And I had like a $500 stereo system and like a $300 car. And so it was awesome. But we're riding, Susan and I were high school sweethearts, ended up marrying my high school sweetheart. We were riding down South Main one day and, and go to turn into a, a gas station right there. We were leaving a party, going to a party. We were partyers, right? And so um, crazy at 16. And so we're, we're going to an, another party and I start to turn into a gas station. And as I'm turning into the gas station, all of a sudden there was a commotion at the right window and I looked and bam, I'd hit a guy on a bicycle scared me. I don't know how bad it scared him, but I know how bad it scared me. 
I'm, I'm pretty sure it scared him too, right? And so we're riding down the road, bam, and he hits it. Susan had her head leaning up against the window. All of a sudden, there's another head up against the window, right, from the other side. It was so crazy. And so he, he like, grabs hold of the car. And, and, and he later, he asked me, don't you have a mirror on that thing? And I looked, and, like, my car was made without a mirror on that side. And so I was like, actually, no, I don't. But he grabs hold of the car, trying to hold on. I slam on brakes. He slingshots off. He had on those shoes that lock into the pedals. Bad day. Bent the wheel. He begins, he's wobbling, trying to hold it together. Finally, just hits and slides and skids. Um, gets all scraped up. He stands up. I'm holding on to the steering wheel, which shook anyway. And I'm holding on to the steering wheel. And I'm like, Susan, if I get out of the car, we're going to fight. And so he stands up, throws his bike, like muscles rippling everywhere. He was in such better shape than I was. And muscles rippling everywhere. He throws the bike. And I thought he was going to turn green, rip out of his shirt, come after me, pick up the car, just like boom, boom, boom. And so... I'm freaking out. Finally, I'm like, I got to get out of the car. He's going to punish me, but I got to get out of the car. And so I get out and he's like, you're going to fix this and this. And then this guy pulls up in like a Ford Explorer or Blazer or something like that. And, and he gets out and he starts giving me the business. He's like, you need to pay for his hospital bills. You need to pay to get his bike fixed. You need to take care of him. It was almost like he was saying, you need to carry like food to his house. You need to bring him water. You need, I was like, well, why are you giving me the business? Like, who are you? His dad? Why are you jumping on me? Why does everybody hate me? I didn't even see him coming. He's the one to hit my car. And so they're all going off on this stuff. And so I'm like, I'm feeling about this big, man. And so finally we have to go down to the police station, fill out this report. And I go in there and I'm like, man, I'm going to jail. I'm, I'm, they're going to give me the chair. I'm going to be executed. They might even do some kind of courthouse hanging, but either way I'm dead. And so we go into the, the police station downtown and I'm like, man, you know, 16 years old, my life is ruined. I hit a guy on a bicycle. And so we're sitting there and the, the cops, they come out and they're, they're looking and they're reading all this stuff. And I could tell they were talking about whatever they were reading. And they start saying, we're going to get him on this and we can get him on this and we can get him on this. And I was like, I am going to jail for a long time. <laughs> and so they walk over and I'm sitting here and they walk past me and walk over to this other guy. And they said, we're going to charge you with driving on the sidewalk and not having reflectors on your bike. I was like, yeah, they are. I was like, talk that smack now, buddy. And so anyway, short of long, it's like, I thought I was going to get charged. He got charged and he was furious. But then they began to show him the law. They began to show him the, what, the, what the book said. And he couldn't say anything. In fact, like we had a court date. He didn't even come to court. He just paid the fine, whatever it was he had to pay. Because he knew that before the law, before the judge, he had no appeal. There was nothing he could say to what was written. It was simply put, he was guilty. And I was innocent. Praise Jesus. Right? So he couldn't make an appeal. And, and I want you to see that that's basically what Paul's saying. It's like our guilt is so obvious according to the law, according to the word, according to God's commandments, according to his holiness. It is so obvious that there's nothing we can do other than say guilty. Listen, there's nothing left for us at this point in this scripture, when we get to verse 20, other than God giving us his judgment. That's it. God stating the penalty for our sin. That is all that's left. Nothing else. You see, here we come to another scripture. It begins in verse 21. And, and those verses, verses 21 through 26, a lot of people who are way smarter than me, there's a lot of them, have said about these verses in this scripture that it's the most important paragraph ever written. 
is so packed full of what Jesus has done for us on the cross that I'll be quite honest with you. I felt like I butchered it at nine o'clock. I'm praying I don't butcher it again, but there's so much here and it's so high and so awesome and so good. I don't know if anybody can do justice to the words that are written on this page because we come up to this thing we bump up against in verse 20 that tells us that no one will be declared righteous in his sight meaning God's sight, but observing the law. All that the law does is makes us conscious of sin. Most of us have understood that, that we are sinners. And he says, none of us will be declared righteous by the law, meaning doing enough good, meaning doing all the things that God says, because nobody can do it. James even said this, if you break one part of the law, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. I mean, we're guilty of it all. We've all fallen short, as verse 23 says. And we bump up against these verses in 9 through 20. And it literally takes us to this depth of hopelessness and helplessness that we can do nothing about. But here's the awesome thing. Look at how verse 21 starts. It says, but now. This is one of the great buts in the Bible. There's a lot of great buts. In fact, this is a huge but. Don't ever tell a lady that she has a huge but. But this big, large, huge but right here. Is a good, is good because it inserts this new righteousness, this new thought. He says, listen, there's no hope, but now, but now, aren't you glad that the scripture didn't end in 20? Aren't you glad that God had a plan that what we're reading here, this next few verses, wasn't some kind of divine afterthought, but that God had a plan all along? to provide for us a way to get around those verses that God, even in our own stubbornness, even in our own hard headedness, even in our own minds, when we think there's no way I could be forgiven, there's no way I could be made right with God. There's no way that the things I've done could be overcome. There's no way that I could be healed from the things done to me. Is it not amazing to know that God had thought about all that, that he knew there'd be a fallen world, that he knew we would sin and that he still says, I've got a plan. I'm going to work my plan and I'm going to begin a good work in you. And I'm going to finish this work in you. If you'll simply trust and put faith in my son. Glad y'all are excited about that. How awesome that we have this God who had a plan, who inserted the but now. But now, he says, there is a righteousness from God in verse 21, apart from the law. It's been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, all of this, all of this hundreds of years, all of these thousands of years that this word was written, that these things were printed, he says, has brought us to this place of this revelation of righteousness that won't be based on what you do, but will be based on what God has done. Because what we do will never be good enough. But what God has done is pleasing to him, has satisfied him, and has removed our sin and its debt from us. Verse 22 says, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't say it comes through what you do. It doesn't say it comes from all your hard work. It simply says it comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And then he says, there is no difference. Basically, he goes back and answers his first question. Are we any better? He's saying, no, there is no difference. For we've all fallen, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We're justified how? Freely. 
Justification, we talked about this last week. You can go back and listen to last week's message. But justification is that instantaneous declaration of righteousness that God gives us when we come to faith in Jesus. When we simply receive what Jesus says. And it says it is given freely by grace. By grace. Only by God's grace. So we see that it's not by anything we do. It's simply by receiving what Jesus has done that we're, we're sanctified, that we're justified. And then we begin this process of sanctification, which is for the rest of our lives. God making us more into his image, more in his likeness. And we see we're put on this path. But here's the problem I see in church. And I believe this with all my heart. I believe that the bulk of the ministry that I would do in my lifetime will be unwinding one thought that has slipped into our churches, especially in the South, and has spied on the freedom of Christians and has ruined and, 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 and come in and, and tampered with the gospel. And it's this one thought that somehow we can earn the, the favor and the righteousness of God. Because we can't. The other day I took Reed fishing out at my mom and dad's and it's about 125 yards from their house down to the pond. And Reed's got one of these fishing poles that um, you throw it and when you reel it, the handle lights up. You know what I'm talking about? I'm going to get me one of the, that's, I want that fishing pole. You know what I'm saying? It's about this long and completely awesome. So much more fun. If fish aren't by you, you can just watch your, your, your pole light up, right? And so we, I take him fishing. He's walking, or I'm actually carrying him. He's carrying the pole. We're walking down to um, the pond. And, and as we get to the dock, I step up on the dock and I sit him down. And I realized that there was some line hanging out of the fishing pole. And so I got the pole and I started reeling it. And as I'm reeling it, I realized there's a lot of line that's come out of the fishing pole. And so I'm reeling, I'm reeling. And I look and he had this little plastic fish on there. It's really awesome. You catch something every time. And so he's got this little plastic fish on, on his line. And I look and I see the little plastic fish like bouncing on the grass, like halfway back to the house. Every bit of line had been um, unwound from this fishing pole and, and, and he had pushed the button about halfway down to the pond. And so then I'm untangling it from grass. He's trying to walk around the dock and, and he's getting all tangled up in it and his legs and, and, and he's about to fall in the pond and I'm trying to get it. And I'm just like, I just, if I wasn't a preacher, I'd just cuss. You know what I'm saying? And so I was just angry, but we were all tangled up in it, all wound up in it. And you know, so many times because we've come into this faith, this workspace salvation mentality that somehow I can earn my salvation from God, somehow this work that that only God can do, this supernatural work, somehow I can do it. We get all tangled up in that and it ends up making it a burden to follow Jesus. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus did what we couldn't do. You can't earn it. You can't maintain it. It's just given by Jesus. And when we realize that, we go to this place where it's no longer a burden to follow him but we follow him out of gratitude because he gave us what we couldn't earn and here's the argument i often hear is that people say but if we don't have to earn anything if we don't have to do anything to keep god happy with us to make him love us then people won't they won't do anything so preacher how do you tell them they're forgiven simply by receiving and then expect them to keep coming and not just live like heathens Like, they won't. Like, why? They won't. But how can you tell me that? 
Because the Bible also teaches this. That that moment of justification, that instantaneous moment, I come to faith in Jesus and God justifies me. He makes me, he declares me righteous before God. He also does a work called regeneration, which is by the Holy Spirit in my heart. He gives me a new heart with new affections. It changes the way I see things. It changes the way I want to live my life. And I begin to pursue him, not because I have to, but because my affections have changed. Because I've been given a new heart. And somehow we've got to unwind this thinking and, and, and get it corrected that somehow what we do is how we come to know Jesus because what we do is only good enough to separate us from him. It's not about what we do, it's about what he's done for us. This is what Paul is teaching us here about God's righteousness, about how we attain it. The first thing he tells us that happens is that at the cross of Jesus, when Jesus hung on the cross, that we were redeemed, that we were redeemed people. But see, here's the thing. Something had to happen so magnificent at the cross. Something had to happen so extraordinary at the cross where Jesus hung on the cross that it reconciles us back to God, that it does something so incredible that, that, that somehow a holy God could forgive unholy people, that somehow a holy God could do away with sin without doing away with the person. See what I'm saying? We're so bound by sin. And this is what the word redemption refers to. It refers to this reality that when Jesus died on the cross, and as the Bible says, when we come to faith in him and are justified freely by him, that Jesus has redeemed us from sin. In other words, he paid the price for our forgiveness. The word redeemed in the Old Testament referred to um, people who would go and buy slaves for the purpose of setting them free. Isn't it awesome to know that our God paid the ultimate price so that you and I could be set free from the bondage of sin and, and death? That we could be set free from the bondage of guilt? That we could be set free so that we, we no longer um, are, are slaves to sin, but that we can live a new life? Not made perfect, but Jesus' perfection being made and worked out in us. This is what God did for us. That he redeemed us. He paid the price for us. That we could be forgiven. That we could be bought out of sin and slavery. It goes on in verse 25. After he says he's redeemed us, he paid the price for our sin. He purchased us from from ourselves and, and saved us from the wrath of God. It says in verse 25 that God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And we see this other big word, and there's some big words, redemption, meaning that he, he paid the price for our sin, that he freed us from the bondage of sin and death and saved us from God's wrath. And we see this new word here that is atonement, which basically, if you really want to know what atonement means, it means at one is basically what it means. It says through faith in his blood that we're made one with, Jesus, with, with God again. That we're made one with Christ. That he, he not only paid the price for sin and freed us from that bondage, but he also came and brought us to this place where we're made at one with God again. And it's this picture of reconciliation. If you think about atonement, it's reconciliation with God. That through faith in Jesus' blood, he paid the price for our sin and now we're made one with him. And it does this other thing too. It's another big word. You can write it down and then you can go back look it up and correct your spelling but it's a word called propitiation propitiation it's this huge long word but let me sum it up for you in this it means simply this god's not mad anymore 
That's good news, right? Like when we come to faith in Christ, when we simply receive what Jesus has done on the cross, God's not mad anymore. But do you know how many Christians I see that when they make a mistake, when they slip up, when they fall into sin, which you never really fall into sin, like you're not just walking along and like all of a sudden, oops, I fell into sin. It's like choices we make. But when we, we see that we've sinned, we've fallen short, so many of us end up turning and going away from God because we still think God's mad, not realizing that through faith in Christ, we can come to God, not away from him. That we can still rest in this promise that Jesus has forgiven us of our sins. And this is the thing I know about most of you and I know about myself. You sin. A lot. Like all of you sin, but some of you sin a lot. But think about the difference that when you make a mistake, you sin, you fall short. If rather than running from God thinking he's angry, you turn to God and again discovered his forgiveness. It makes you want to live for him all that much more. God, really? You forgive me again? I don't ever, why would I take that life over this life? Why would I take the sweetness of fellowship with God? Fellowship with His Spirit and turn to go after my sin. We don't have to run from God. Jesus paid the price. His sacrifice, atonement of in His blood, this at woman, this reconciliation that He did by shedding His blood. The fact that he appeased the wrath of God when Jesus hung on a cross. He took the wrath of God that was deserved, that we deserved. So that we could be reconciled. But that blows our mind. We cannot understand. How? It's so amazing to go back and look through the, the Bible. And if you go back and read it, I, I honestly, like, I do not recommend just if you've never read the Bible, going to Genesis because, and start reading. Because Genesis is good. Exodus is pretty good then you get to um like leviticus numbers those books like that and you're like i have absolutely no idea what's going on they start killing stuff they start building stuff and you're like i have no idea i, ha I absolutely i understood moses now i have no idea why they're killing bulls and goats and sheep and everything else right but if you go back and you begin in Genesis, you will find this. And in chapter 3, people sin. Adam and Eve sin. They fall short of the glory of God. And, 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 and we've inherited that since the beginning of time. But the awesome thing about God is in verse 21 of that same chapter, the Bible says that he covers Adam and Eve with gar garments of animal skin. And the thing I want you to see in that is where the animal skins came from. I mean, he, he killed an animal and he shed blood. To do what? To cover their shame. Every time they looked at each other and they saw nakedness, they remembered their disobedience. And God says, you know what? I'm going to cover their shame with the sacrifice of an animal. If you go from Genesis 3.21 and you follow that, you know where it leads you straight to? This line of blood that continues throughout the Old Testament through sacrifices and through everything else. Where do you think it leads you to? The cross. The cross. And you follow this, this line of blood from Genesis 3.21 all the way through. And you see that it was always by blood that sin was atoned for. You go into Genesis chapter 22, 1 through 13. And you see where God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. He doesn't let him do it, but he says, this is the way it's going to happen. One day I'm going to sacrifice my only son. Isaac was Abraham's only son. He says, sacrifice me. He says, stop. I'll provide the sacrifice. And he gives him a goat that was stuck in a thicket and he sacrifices that goat. But understand this, that God has provided a sacrifice so that we don't have to be the sacrifice. You go on into Exodus chapter 12, it's what we call the Passover. 
We, we, we now, um, in a way, celebrate the Passover when we take the Lord's Supper, when we take communion together, um, but, but in a different way. Because the Jews, when they were in Egypt, God said, listen, here's how I'm going to deliver you. This is how I'm going to redeem you. The same language, I'm going to set you free from the bondage that you're in. I'm going to redeem you because you're going to go and you're going to sacrifice a lamb and you're going to take his blood and put it over the doorpost and you're going to put it on the sides of the door. And when I come through Egypt on that night, I'm going to see the blood and I'm going to pass over you. The blood was always this, this atonement for sin that God passed over in his judgment. That he didn't put his judgment on the people of faith. It wasn't in what they did, it was in the power of the blood. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 tells us this, that, that, that the life of an animal, the life of a person is in the blood. So it was always a life that had to be sacrificed in order for atonement to take place. The problem is in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament teaches us this, that the blood of bulls and goats, um, the blood of lambs and, and any other animal can never take away sin. And so what was all that bloodshed for? I mean, they're killing lambs and, and bulls and every. I mean, I'm talking about by the thousands. They were killing them. And once a year, they would bring, in, uh, bring a lamb in every family and they would sacrifice that lamb. Why were they killing them all? I mean, what was the point? I can tell you this, two things. One, it was a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice that would take place with Jesus. And two, you could think of it as a temporary payment. It was a temporary payment this atonement and faith of shedding blood that one day God would pay in full. It's almost like when you go buy something with a credit card. How many of you got a credit card? It's okay. I'm not going to like condemn you for it. I've got one too. Credit card. Yeah. How many of you wish you didn't have a credit card? Y'all didn't raise your hands very high. It's like, how many of you, you know, love the Eagles? Woo! How many of you got a credit card? And some of us, a lot of us wish we didn't have a credit card because, you know, then we got to pay that thing off. And it's fun, right? When you go to the store and you swipe it and you make the payment and you get to walk out with the stuff. But what happens every month? They send that bill, don't they? And it has to be paid. And eventually it has to be paid in full. When you think about the atonement, you think about the sacrifices of the Old Testament. It was almost like God, by, in faith, was letting them pay a temporary payment. It was almost like he was saying, I'll pay, you can pay for it with the card. But one day there's going to have to be a payment that makes the payment in full and pays the debt in full. And that payment was Jesus. So much so, listen, that when John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin, sees Jesus walking one day, he's coming by, John the Baptist is teaching his disciples and, and they've been baptizing. That's why they called him John the Baptist. Wouldn't make sense if he didn't baptize, would it? Just be a weird name. And so he was baptizing people and, and doing all this stuff. And, and Jesus comes walking by one day and he looks up and he yells out and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, people take, take heart and pay attention because the final sacrifice is here. And he's going to shed his blood and he's going to make payment for your sin. He's going to reconcile you to God by faith in his sacrifice, his ultimate final sacrifice that's going to be made. That I started back with your original grandparents, right? And brung all the way through for hundreds and hundreds of years. This is the final sacrifice that will be made. The final price will be paid. Behold, the Lamb of God who will be slain for the forgiveness of sins. What an awesome day. What an awesome day to behold the Lamb of God who paid for our sins. And I think about that. The other night, I told y'all last week, 
um, about my conversation with Jackson when Jackson said, Daddy, why doesn't God just kill all the bad people? And basically the gist of the story was, well, he's bad. He said, um, people that killed Jesus. And I said, but compared to God, he's bad. He said, everybody. And I said, who does that include? He said, me. I said, you still want God to kill all the bad people? He said, no, sir. <laughs> that same conversation, he said, well, Daddy, could you die for me? I said, sure, son, I could die for you. And you know this, I would die for you. But in this, it'd do no good. And he said, why not? I said, I'm no better than you are. Remember, we're all bad. He goes, oh. And so here's how I know you can get this. A six-year-old got it. I said, so Jesus came to earth. God came to earth in flesh, lived a life that we couldn't live, lived a perfect life, lived a clean life, a pure life, so that the one who was pure could take that from us who are impure, that the one who was clean could become unclean, so that you and I could become clean, so that we could be made right with God, declared righteousness, righteous, and then have that righteousness worked out of us, so we see that God sent a, something clean to clean what was dirty. One of the things I hate doing more than anything is sticking my hand in dirty dishwasher water, right? especially when it's cold I don't care if and you got to understand when you got three kids there's some nasty stuff in dishwater you'll open up a sippy cup and do like this and nothing comes out but it's heavy and then you do like this and it goes (laughs) it's like yogurt you know what I mean it's nasty man milk it's turned to yogurt it's like, I don't know if it's butter. I don't know what it is, but it's nasty and it stinks so bad. And so there's nasty stuff in our dishwasher. And so sometimes I'll go and, and I'll get the dish rag, but I know it's been in the dish, dirty dishwater. And so I'm like, if I wipe down the counters with this, what's it going to do? It's just going to make the counter dirty. You can't clean something that's dirty with something dirty. It takes something clean to clean something dirty. Or it's just... Dirt on top of dirt. Jesus, the perfect one, the son of God, lived a perfect life to take our sin, to separate it from us. Jesus was the ultimate and final sacrifice that atoned for our sin, reconciled us back to God and satisfied his holy anger. When you look to Jesus on the cross, you see the full wrath of God poured out. Not a part of the wrath. He didn't withhold some of it from us. He poured it all out. So here's the awesome thing about God is he didn't just overlook sin. He didn't sweep it under the rug. He dealt with it. That's why the Bible can say that our sins are separated as far as the east is from the west, that they can never come back to us. Listen, at the moment that you come to Christ, at the moment after you've been saved and you repent of your sin that stuff can never come back to you it's separated why because God didn't overlook it so that one day he's sitting around talking with Jesus and the Holy Spirit and he's like you know what I'd like to bring their sin back up again why because the full penalty was paid it wasn't just overlooked it was dealt with so much so that justification is not just not punishing sin Justification is when God looks at us through Christ and doesn't even see why he should punish us in the first place. It means that punishment would be unjust because God justly punished sin through Jesus. We see that this happens on the cross. The last thing I'll tell you, we go into verse, on into verse 25, he says, he did this to demonstrate, to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. 
He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith. So the last thing I want you to understand about the cross, when we look at redemption, we look at atonement, we understand propitiation, that God has, has um, satisfied his wrath, that he's no longer angry at us. We can come to God now because of Jesus and his work on the cross. We can come in faith. And the last word I want you to write down is that it was a demonstration. It was a demonstration of his justice. It was a demonstration that I haven't overlooked it. I haven't, listen, I didn't even forget it. I knew it was coming. I wasn't surprised by it. But I punished it on the cross so that I could be reconciled with you. You want to talk about God so loving the world. Is that not love that God himself would give himself for our sin? That God made us righteous because he was willing to give himself. God punished himself so that we could be set free. Separating us from sin. Being made alive. God, God would have been completely unjust in condoning sin if sin wasn't punished. So he punished it through Jesus on the cross. It's full wrath on Jesus. That ought to make us want to praise the lamb who was slain, right? That he took the full wrath of God upon himself. That we could be forgiven. That ought to make us want to praise Jesus. That we don't have to undergo that. Separation from God for eternity. Because Jesus paid that ultimate price. He took the wrath of God. He redeemed us. He paid that, sin, that price for sin. The last thing I tell you is, Paul says three times in these verses that these things come by faith. They come by faith. They don't come by our works. They don't come by what we do. They come by faith. We simply receive them. Faith is the hands that receive from God. It's not the hands that do a bunch of work to be made right with God. It's simply receiving I told you about when the, the, the father of the family would go into the temple one time a year and they would take a lamb and it had to be a perfect spotless lamb. That's why Jesus was the perfect spotless lamb of God who was slain for the world. And he would take that father would take that lamb into the temple and he would walk in and he would put his hand on the lamb's head. And, and this temple priest would come up and as the man puts his hand on the lamb's head, he would begin to repent of the sins, his sins and his family's sins. And he would begin to tell it. And sometimes it would take a long time. Like some of us might be in there for days, right? Repenting of sin. And they'd go in and he would lay his hand on that lamb's head and he would say all of the sins. He would repent of all the sins. And then with his hand on the lamb's head, the priest would cut the lamb's throat and he would shed the blood. And it was symbolic of the transference of sin to the lamb. And it was a sign of his faith that God, through the shedding of this blood, would forgive him of sin. My question to you today when we consider this thought about am I saved is, is your hand upon the lamb? Have you received his forgiveness? Just received it as he's offered it. God changed your heart through receiving Christ. Is your hand resting upon the Lamb of God that was slain for the world? If it is, then celebrate the Lamb who gave his life that we could live. If not, I would ask, ask you to look in your heart and see, is Jesus drawing you to himself today? Is he awakening you to the reality that I need him. I need to simply receive what he's offering. Warts and all, like all the bad stuff and all. She would receive 
So you put your hand upon the lamb. The last thing I would tell you, and I want you to think about faith in that way, that my hand is upon the lamb. The last thing I would tell you is this, that so many of us in here today, our entire Christian life has been simply trying to stand, trying to do what's right, trying to be a good little boy, trying to be a good little girl, trying to make things right on your own, thinking that somehow if I do enough good, if I, if I, if I can just try hard enough that somehow one day I'll be able to stand before God, that I'll be able to stand in his presence. And the reality of it is no one can stand. We've already established that. It's only through the righteousness given by Jesus, through his sacrifice, that anyone would be able to stand before the throne. We would all be smoked into a pile of ash if we walked into the holiness of God. It's so powerful and so righteous and so good and we're so not. But when we come in faith to, to or we come to faith in Christ, we come to this place where the Bible says we can go boldly before his throne of grace. Why? Because God has elevated us in righteousness. But nobody can stand on their own righteousness. No, not one is righteous. We come to a place where we realize Jesus has finished work on the cross. We come to this place where we simply rest. We just simply rest. And we put the full weight of our trust. We put the full weight of his life. I might start preaching in a chair. This feels pretty good. We put the full weight of our life and our trust. We put the full weight of our hopes, our dreams, everything upon Christ. And we come to this place where we simply receive. And it feels so good. For many of you know the moment that you met Christ and and you realize that your sins have been taken away, that you had been redeemed and that bondage and and guilt of sin and slavery to sin had been lifted off of you and you came to this place of resting in Christ it's simply resting I mean here's the reality right now like if if you were to come and you were to pull these these legs out from under me 195 pounds that is not very graceful would hit the floor because the full weight of who I am is resting on the chair when we come to Christ and we receive him and we recognize what he's done for us. We put the full weight of our life on him. And we trust him in such a way that if somebody pulled the, or if somehow Jesus failed, which he never will, if somehow his righteousness wasn't good enough, which it always is, that if somehow he failed, we'd fall. That if somehow he failed, all of our hope would turn into hopelessness. Are you hoping in Christ? Are you trusting in Christ? Are you resting in Him? Are you resting from your works of trying to be good enough and just receiving what Jesus did? Because I'm telling you, it is impossible to have that revelation, to be resting in Him, and to look at a blood-stained cross and not worship. Are you resting? This is what he's called us to. And at times, listen, those of us who are in Christ, we try to stand, don't we? The older I get, the harder it is to stand. It's gravity over time works on you. And some of us are trying to stand on our own merit. We're just trying to work a little bit harder, trying to do a little bit better. You need to return to your first love, Jesus, and rest in him. We have this opportunity to rest, simply to receive. God's done it all. There's nothing we could do. We were helpless and hopeless. And God says here, just take it. Rest in me.
Why don't we pray? God, thank you so much for your love and your, your grace that saved us. God, I'm so thankful that you are just and righteous. I wouldn't want to serve a God who isn't. But Lord, uh, thank you that you made a way for us to come to you that our sin could be dealt with and separated from us without having to punish us, God. Thank you. Lord, I pray you'll, or you have, I pray you have or you will open people's hearts to receive this today. Just simply receive by faith your goodness, your forgiveness, your mercy, your grace, to be made right with you, to be reconciled. God, I pray for those who are fighting to try to stand on their own, that they would just rest. Rest in you, God. Lord, we love you and thank you. We praise you, God, for you are good.